Welcome to The Oracle, a podcast for wild feminine wisdom channeled from the deep. I'm your host, Miriam Ropschitz, creatrix of Moonbody. I'm a guide for women sharing body-based teachings on the feminine. The Oracle brings you podcasts on womb wisdom, sacred sexuality, embodiment, and the women's mysteries. My prayer is that these conversations with my coven enrich, ignite, and inspire your relationship to the sacred feminine for a life of magic, pleasure, and power. Hello, this is Miriam. Welcome to the Oracle and welcome to this conversation with somebody whom I adore, Sophie Strand, writer, author based in the Hudson Valley, who is writing at this electrifying intersection between spirituality and ecology and myth and storytelling. I've known Sophie for a little over a year and when I first encountered her beautiful work and poetry, I felt this instant resonance and kinship with her and she's somebody whom I consider a friend and a sister on the path these days. I was lucky enough to have Sophie come and teach on Dark Feminine Medicine this year where she offered us this incredible talk on the more than human dark feminine um, where she really rocked our world with her incredible command of her feminine genius Um, she's an absolute joy and a treat and she's been interviewed many many times I've listened to beautiful podcasts with Sophie and when it came to speaking to her, something I was hungry for as a real Sophie Strand fangirl was, I mean, her work is amazing and we could talk about that all day, but I don't know about you, when there's somebody whom I admire and I'm intrigued in, I want to know the mundane stuff. I want to gossip with them. So this is a, a bit of a gossipy hour where we get to hear Sophie share with us some of the details of her life that I don't feel people ask her about that often. So I'm really happy to share this conversation with Sophie. And at the end of this podcast, I'm going to share with you some of the ways that you can find Sophie's work. She has a book out very soon and a second book out next year. She has many poems online and she's just really pollinating some incredibly healing magic into the world. She's a really beautiful, unique being whom I'm incredibly grateful to know and excited to share her with you here in this conversation. So I give you Sophie Strand. So it gives me great pleasure to have... Sophie Strand here on the podcast today. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Miriam. Thanks for having me. Of course. You are my first guest on the Oracle. And this has been 
something that I've been planning. I really wanted you to be the first person that I speak to. Well, that's a huge honor. <laughs> Good. Yeah, and I feel like um, I would love to see who else you interview and the ecosystem that you bring together. Um, I trust that you would have a very good intuition about people with interesting insights. Thank you, love. I think I do, you know. And I have a lot of very interesting women who are coming on to, to be guests. Women who, like you and I, have um, an intimacy, a friendship, a relationship that has begun, you know, through online, through... Um, through me reading your work and being inspired and also something that I try and do these days is when there are people who inspire me, I I tell them. <laughs> yeah, it's important that we do that, that we create that connective tissue because um, you never know who's not hearing it. <laughs> yes, and you, kn you know it's good for both parties, isn't it? It's like on yeah. one hand, somebody gets to hear, oh, your work has touched me. And on the other hand, it, for me personally, it stretches me. It's like, oh, this is a little bit edgy. I'm going to go to this person who, you know, often when we admire people, it's because they have something that we don't have. Not always, but there's a facet of their expression that, we're drawn to like a moth to a flame. And I definitely had that with your work. I remember when I discovered you. It must be like 18 months ago, maybe. It maybe might a, be, yeah. Maybe a Isn't little bit longer. Yeah. And I was just like, who is this woman? What is she doing? How does she do all this stuff? So, you know, I have a real fascination with you in a, in a beautiful sisterly way because I I love your work it's incredibly provoking um in the best way and it makes me think it challenges my vocabulary I always learn new words and it's it's really expanded the way that I approach story and myth which is a huge part of my work well, thank you, Miriam. That is very generous. And I will say that we connected well before I had more than a handful of readers. And so I think that it's really important for me to acknowledge those people who were, you know, I think of these plants that to they don't produce their own food through photosynthesis. They're totally kept alive by fungal implants in the ground. Mycoheterotrophs is what they're called. So they have this very uneven relationship from the outside, from a quantitative perspective of measuring flow of nutrients with the fungi, where the fungi give them everything and keep them alive. <laughs> but mm. often there's a certain point in the plant's life where they give back. Um, and I, I was thinking about how that initial group of readers that really supported me and recognized my work when no one else did were my fungal support system, like mm. the most crucial part of my development and you are one of those people and so the thanks I give you is very very deep <laughs> oh thank you love that's so beautiful I had no idea that I was one of your yeah you know, one of your OG fangirls you were I mean it was it was a small group of people in way back when a year ago 
Yeah, that's amazing. I'm well. I'm also like honored by my own taste. You know, I'm like <laughs> impressed with myself. But that's so cool. And now I love to see how wide your work is pollinating. We're all ravenous for it. And you know, something I really want to do in this conversation with you is. I've listened to a lot of interviews with you, a lot of podcast, in beautiful, beautiful podcast interviews with you, and none of them really have satiated my desire <laughs> to like get a bit more Sophie Strand gossip. Oh, I love gossip. I mean, I also think I am a gossip. Good. <laughs> I mean, I was raised by an English grandmother who wanted to, you know, gossip about all the celebrities and all of the local people. Um, and gossip, as you definitely know, as a person who is well-versed in being a witch and <laughs> the divine feminine, gossip just means women who share news. Yes. <laughs> you remember there's a really great chapter in Caliban and the Witch. Exactly. That's yeah. what I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if, for anyone who's listening, Caliban and the Witch by Silvia Federici, there's this is a wonderful book. Um, about the the body, women, the commons, and witches. And it has a great, very um, etymologically rich chapter on gossip and this idea yeah. that gossip has, has this tinge of kind of misogyny to the word, doesn't it? As this like lower vibrational thing that silly women do when in fact it was how we shared our it was it's its own like mycelial network right? exactly yeah it's the way that women share the most important information both spiritual and practical yes exactly yeah. so we'll get into some gossip but first I want to just I want to ask you how you are today how am I today um how's your body you know, it's been an interesting experience, to be very honest. I've been extraordinarily ill. Um, oh. I'm having a real flare of the genetic health issues that I have um, mm -hmm. that were seem to have been triggered by COVID, mm. um, but also probably by extraordinary busyness. <laughs> I tend to work to burnout. It's something I've oh. been trying to remedy for a long time. Um, so I'm having a lot of incredible connections and professional opportunities happening. So very excited about that but physically I think I'm a little afraid thank, thank you for asking what about you mm, no I hear you that's that's interesting you said that because I've often wondered about like how does she bring out all this incredible work like is it that she's got it in the vault and it's just coming out like in drips or is she there like is this all new Everything I've shared in the past year has been new. I think I've written a thousand wow. pages of writing in the past year. <laughs> wow. And do you write with a pen to paper? No, I, I type. Okay. Because um, I, I revise so heavily. Yes. Um, and I'm revising as I'm writing. Um, it's funny. When I first started writing when I was younger, I wrote pen on paper and mm -hmm. I wrote long fantasy novels and then revised them by hand. So I did have that experience, but I'm very grateful for the computer. <laughs> Oh, me too. I yeah. know I'm the same, love. I used to write my poetry, my reams of poetry with pen and paper, and it's just a <laughs> lot easier, especially when you're sending it to editors and people. Yeah. They, they need it written, don't they? But I'm well. I am well. I'm doing good. It's cold here. I'm in England visiting my family. It's rainy. It's grey. It's the, the kind of weather that I escaped from, and <laughs> it's very... um. 
confronting to be back in a little Somerset village in a little cottage in the grey. You know, it's it's beautiful. I see I see my um, the parts of myself that are uh, that like to hide. I see those here. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've already given you a beautiful introduction at the beginning of this episode, but I wanted to ask you, you know, we can, we have beautiful bios and we can say um, all these wonderful things and share our achievements and, you know, you have books and all these things, but I wanted to ask you like what today, who are you today and what is feeling most important to you right now? Hmm. I actually think that I've been getting closer to the, the just the simplest answer, which is I'm a lover. Ooh. Um, I, it's funny also because in tarot and astrology and all sorts of numerology, apparently all of my life cards across the board are the lovers. Number oh. six in the tarot, major arcana. Um, but it, it's very true. I love love. And I, I, I truly believe that as simple as it is, love stories are what we need right now. Mm. And that the revolution will be pleasurable. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that if we follow what we love, we will find where we should be. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I think that the world has been missing romance for a long time. And romance in a troubadour, courtly love sense, you know, a playful, gender bending, um, interspecies uh, fusion. Um, romance as a way of upending dominant paradigms yeah as as anarchy Mm, I love that that's who I am and that's what I care about yeah and I also think it's better I really don't love having to introduce yourself with accolades or with titles and because the truth is that yes I've studied things but the truth is what I really am is a lover of things and Mm. I'm enthusiastic and in love with what I write about Mm. (laughs) yeah Love, I know you are a Sagittarius sun, right? I am. And what is your moon and your Venus and your <laughs> rising? Um, my, let me go get my phone. I have it written down. I am a Libra moon, which oh. of course I think makes sense with the, the loving and the partnership um, yeah. obsession. Um, but I'm a Virgo rising, which I think is ha- dominantly how I present according to friends and family. Mm, I can Vera- see that Virgo. Yeah. Um, I don't know what my Venus is. I feel like it might be Sagittarius. I think it is Sagittarius. Beautiful. What a lovely constellation of planets. What are you? I am Aquarius Sun, Mm. uh, Taurus Moon, Libra Rising. Oh, beautiful. Um, I love Aquariuses so much. My mom is an Aquarius. Oh, is she? Oh, your mom is an amazing woman. She is. <laughs> I will say that. She's really um, special. But it's funny, you, you both both you and her have a fierce um intelligence that's outside of the normal like you, you have very fresh ways of looking at things. So I would say that you're both very Aquarians. Thank you. I do love my Aquarius nature, although it does get me in all kinds of mischief. <laughs> Always getting in mischief mm-hmm. naughty things. Um, you know, love, I'm glad that you said you're a lover because something I I see you as this very erotic, sensual being. I mean, <laughs> you would have to be for all your 
writing to come through you. These these are the words and the poetry of somebody who is tingling with, you know, the the eros of life and nature and dew and petals and you know all this. I just feel it so vibrantly in your words and in your being. And yet, something I've noticed, and this may be incorrect, but you can tell me what you think about this. Is you know, when I listen to interviews with you, I feel as though people, um, what would be the right word to say? They kind of desex you. Oh yeah, totally. What's、um, that about? What is that about? Well, a woman, you know, it's in Mac- Lady Macbeth, unsex me. You, to have power and to be, to be considered intellectually viable is you have to either, <laughs> you have to either be a, a sex. Object or symbol, or you have to be completely desexualized to enter into dominant paradigms and intellectual spaces. Something I've noticed for a long time. I noticed it when I was I was very inside of academia for a long time, and I really thought that was going to be the route I took. Yeah. And the, the thinner and more anorexic and sick and severe I became, the more rewarded I was by the academy、mm. and complimented. And the more sterile my writing became, my ideas became, the more rigid and masculine they became, the more unhappy I was, and the more rewarded I got by、um, the system. So yeah, I've noticed that 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 happens. Even though my writing is absolutely maximalist and lush and overblown and breaks all the rules of what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So I mean. I, I, that's obvious, isn't it? That it's that they are that you know, with all the best intentions, these lovely people have. Because I know they love your work, and obviously they love you. But it's that ancient Madonna whore slit. Yeah, I, I, this thing I've been really struggling with lately because in my own life, I also experience these giant oscillations in my own life and lived experience. Right. Which is, I think, I go through these periods of extraordinary illness and extraordinary forced asceticism,、mm. where it, my life really does feel severe in a way that I would never order off the menu.、Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and then, and I long for the lush, celebratory, delicious life, and and don't get to experience it. So, yeah, I think I'm writing about I'm writing like a plant that's growing towards the sun. It's a phototropic enterprise. I'm trying to write myself into the pleasure I feel has been denied me.、Mm, that sounds beautiful. I'm just imagining you as this gorgeous, you know, red-headed, long-petaled, <laughs> long-limbed, milky-skinned, gorgeous creation, reaching your tendrils up to the sunshine. I'm trying. I'm trying desperately. It's definitely been a very. It's funny. I exited a very, very dour relationship. Oh, which was it was a, a two years ago. It was、right. very long. It was an engagement. I thought we we both I think thought we were going to be together forever. <laughs> we lived together for a long time, and it was it was a relationship that it was everything was always work, and my work was primary. We were working on the relationship. Everything was hard, and I exited it right before quarantine. Right. And I had this brief window where I thought maybe life will be like a peony, maybe it will be like a celebration, and I'll actually get to have some fun. <laughs> and that lasted about ten seconds. Oh, so. And have you had some fun since? Or you? 
No, it's been a pretty intense. I mean, fun is 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 a complicated word. Yeah. I love and enjoy writing. I've had ex- I've experienced incredible connectivity and joy. Um, it's been the hardest two years of my life. Um, mm-hmm. It's been a very intense time, physically and emotionally and professionally. Yeah, um, but I think that we've all had our different versions of that in the midst of this pandemic. Mm. Yes, love. I'm sure many listening will agree with you there. So I want to know if you're doing you're doing so much writing, and you said you have a tendency to work to burnout. Yeah. What what gives you pleasure? What do you do for pleasure and relaxation? What are your pleasure rituals? What you know? What do you love to eat? Do you love to watch sometimes TV? You know, what do you love? That's a nice question. And it's actually what I struggle with. I've been doing a prayer, which is that I would like to learn from pleasure, not from pain Mm. and not from punishment anymore. I don't want to call in more lessons from bad luck. Mm, And I think at a certain point you have to say no to that. You have to not accept it. Um, So I, I, my condition is pretty severe in terms of how it limits the choices I make in my life. Um, It's gone in and out of severity, but I'm, pretty deathly allergic to most foods. I'm pretty violently ill when I eat food in general. So food is no, has not been a place where I'm allowed to experience pleasure in, in a long time. And that's hard because I love to cook. And before quarantine, I would, even though I couldn't eat food easily, I would cook a lot. I love to bake. And I would have big celebrations and cook for people. So cooking brings me a lot of pleasure. Mm. It's really meditative. I really drop into my body my sense of smell is one of my favorite, um, I think it's my, it's my favorite sense and it's, it's my superpower. I, sm- I smell very intensely. Um, and I love cooking with spices and um, with good ingredients. Um, but for the past two years, my pleasure has been hard to achieve. Um, but it's been a meditation. It's been something I've been actively trained to cultivate. I love my coffee in the morning. How do you take your coffee? I grind my beans very, very fine, fresh, and I make an extraordinarily strong cup of black coffee um, Mm. that my mom has been known to call jet engine fuel. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I love my coffee. I love my time spent outside. I think the the most pleasure I feel these days is when I'm running. Um, And I have to run every day for to keep my physical condition in check and to keep my cardiac health okay but I do love it and there's a point that I reach in runs where I feel like I you know one of my favorite writers Nan Shepard says that you walk the body translucent when you walk up mountains for a long time wow and there's a moment in my run where I feel like I've run my body translucent where I feel like I'm water in water and Mm -hmm. I don't think there's quite anything like that um and as for TV, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit something that will probably destroy. Because um, I'm not a saint. I, think, I actually I really like your question because I think it gives me an opportunity to destroy this like weird hagiography that people have made up. Destroy I'm it. I'm a little e- eco princess and I'm not. I love The Bachelor. I'm a oh! longtime fan of The Bachelor. I watch it religiously, have for years. Um. I, I love really bad reality television show. I haven't watched many much of it recently, but I do I do love The Bachelor. Mm. <laughs> it's so hideously misogynistic and terrible, 
but there's something about its predictability that is incredibly relaxing. Um, I think you've just given people a gift. <laughs> it's so gift. funny. Thank you for this gift. I love yeah. I, I love to hear that because you know, like I've watched all of the Real Housewives of Beverly oh, Hills, yeah. you know, and sometimes I tell women who I'm doing deep work with that, and they're like, "Oh, <laughs> I can't imagine you watching TV." And you know, I watch it on my laptop. I don't watch yeah. TV, but it's so it's you know, you're not a saint. You're not. I love your essay. I will not be purified. Yeah. I feel like we just put a little addendum. P.S. I love the bachelor bitches. I do. And I love, here's, here's another thing is I think that people don't understand is, and I won't be able to access it here because I'm a very obscene person. And I think that that's funny that a lot of people who know me now don't know that is like, I've, by my friends, I've known as the like most obscene person they've ever met. Mm. <laughs> like a, just a really raunchy, raunchy, inappropriate Sagittarian sense of humor. Good. <laughs> and I, um... I do feel like over the past couple of years, as I've become visible more publicly, I, I don't do that publicly. Um, and it feels like an interesting lacuna in my public <laughs> um, persona. Yeah. Yeah. I, do you feel like people are expecting you to be that, you know, as you said, eco princess? Oh, yeah. So you, you play into it or do you feel obligated to do it and you're the one creating that kind of box mm, that's interesting I think that there's always personal responsibility you always choose what you're doing and mm -hmm. but then I do think that there's an interesting my favorite writers and thinkers have actively destroyed and remade themselves yeah and I really appreciate that about them that they do different kinds of writing they switch between genres they disappoint their fans I mean and I think that that's a really good model. And I don't really love that there, there is a kind of problematic cult of saints, but without any of, of the kind of sacred scaffolding that happens with social media, where people expect you to always be pure and to never contaminate your version that you present to them for free. Yes. <laughs> um, I know I this a that, lot. Yeah. And I think you, you probably experience that all the time. Um, which is you say something and it, you know, it, somebody who's chosen to follow you <laughs> is disappointed in you for expressing your opinion. And it's such an interesting experience having to navigate that. Um, yeah, so I think that I have to risk disappointing people um, and changing my mind. And I, Amanda Palmer is a really good example of that, which is she's repeatedly done things that, um, bring her new fans, but also perhaps trigger her older fans. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have such an avid and dedicated readership that it's only going to grow. You know, I remember joking with you when you reached 10,000 uh, followers on Instagram that you're like the, the anti-boss babe. Like you're, <laughs> you're growing, you're, you're in the most authentic way you are creating a dedicated readership, which is, you know, what many of us are aspiring to do with our social media channels. We essentially desire connectivity with our readers. Yeah. And for you, it has just grown 
very fast and incredibly organically. And I feel with that, there is, you know, there's so much potential for you to, yeah, for you to, to rebirth and to die to these other, you know, more constricted versions of yourself. Yeah, and I do think that the interesting thing is, you know, you found me, I think, through my Magdalene work, right? Am I wrong? No, I don't think no. it was Magdalene. I think huh. it was through your, I can't remember exactly, love, but it was like, I think it was your um, your flowering ones, um, your lunar men, your, you know, what's, oh, what's interesting. what yeah. am I referring to? The flowering wand. Probably. Ah, yeah, the flowering yeah. wand, yeah the rewilding the sacred masculine i think it was through these essays where i was like oh yeah those those were the ones that took off what a strange thing um but yeah i do think that when my fiction comes out it will be a different experience for people who mm -hmm. have been reading my nonfiction. um but yeah i i do think it's important to say like i have been kept alive by the people who've showed up and I, I think that when you're creating a social media base, there's this idea of superficially inflating your numbers, not understanding that those are real people. <laughs> yeah. And I think for me, it's been so important to respond to every single message and to try and create as many personal relationships as possible. Mm -hmm. Because this is, this is like an honor. <laughs> yeah. A deep, deep honor. Yeah. It is. And I do love to see how you... I often read your comments because there's beautiful comments going on. There's a lot of uh, conversation happening in your comment threads. And I love, I love to see the genuine awe that people often are expressing at reading your work, which is absolutely what I feel too. It's, it's hard to really describe your work, but it's just magical and beautiful and I can't get enough. Oh, thank you. Yeah, love. I, I mean, I'm writing, I, 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 to be very honest, I'm writing what I want to read. Mm. Um, and I think that there were books and writing, there were pieces of writing and books that kept me alive when I was younger. I, you know, I survived pretty violent sexual abuse mm. <laughs> when I was very, very young. Mm. And so there were, there were books that, and stories that came after that, that it wasn't that they were comforting. It was that they, they kept me in the world. Mm. And so when I, I write, I write not as a kind of hobby or a pastime or trying to make an idea happen. I, I try to write the stories and, and the writing that could be medicine. Yeah. That is medicine for me and medicine for other people. Yeah. What were some of those books that, that kept you in the world? Well, I think that you know, I have a very complicated relationship to, now, to it now, and I don't talk about it very publicly, but Harry Potter. Right. <laughs> um, you know, my parents worked for Scholastic, so we got the books before they came out in America. Mm. And Harry Potter, the idea that there was a boy who had experienced extraordinary trauma early in his life, could still be magical and could still be a hero while navigating, like, PTSD and all of these different things. Um I think that was really helpful. Mm. Um, growing up alongside Harry was 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 pretty pretty life saving. Um, another book by a person who have had to disown is *Miss of Avalon*. What a strange thing! Oh, um, I don't know. You know what? I was actually listening to your podcast interview. I can't remember the lovely people, but you you mentioned *Miss of Avalon* <laughs> and the author. 
I forget her name too. Mm. I, yeah. I don't know what she's been doing. Do you want to say or is it? She, well, she's, she's passed. I don't think I'll, I'll bring it up, but she okay. did. I don't believe in canceling people or, you know, if, if we're going to cancel people, we have to delete everything that every man ever wrote in the canon because they were all terrible people. <laughs> um, but she did do some pretty heinous things. Okay. Pretty terrible. And I'll you research. can find out. And it made me, as a survivor of childhood abuse, feel like my relationship with the book was deeply changed when I found out. And But I will say that that book, when I read it, showed me that you could create epic storytelling that with a diversity of powerful female characters. Mm. Um, yeah, that book was very meaningful to me. And it, it's hard, but I can't, I don't feel like I can reliably recommend it anymore, which is interesting. Yes. Thank you yeah. for your, yeah, your clarity on that. I appreciate that. Just popping into this conversation with Sophie to remind you that coming up in March is Nectar, my women's mysteries training, taking place in Puglia, Italy, at my favorite retreat center. If you're a woman who is on the path of exploring the sacred feminine and embodiment and goddess wisdom, then Nectar is something that you really might like to be a part of. We still have two spaces available at the time of this recording. If you want to know more about Nectar and joining me in Italy, head over to my Instagram at moon underscore body and click the link there. Nectar is an immersive experience. It's a training in a retreat setting. So there's lots of teaching, but there's also lots of time and space to rest and relax in this most beautiful place in the Puglian countryside. We're going to be studying embodiment, womb wisdom, the ways of the priestess and feminine spirituality. From this training, you'll take home so many useful tools that you can use in your daily life as a way of finding more pleasure, power, and magic. Something mm. that I mentioned that I want to speak to you about is, you know, your work uh, around rewilding the sacred masculine. And I know you have the collection <laughs> of essays, right? The flowering yeah. pond. Yeah. Can you tell us the full title? Because it's a mouthful, but it's beautiful. Well, it got simplified. It's so oh. funny. It got picked up with my original title and then it got simplified. I don't think I would have ever chosen to have used the words rewilding or sacred masculine ah. in the title, but those have now been officially added, okay. um, which I trust my publish publisher's um, wherewithal, their, their knowledge of how these things work. Mm -hmm. um, the title is The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. But the subtitle I originally had that is still on the cover is... Transspecies magicians, lichenized lovers, rhizomatic harpists, and um, lunar kings. I love that. Thank you. Yes, I that's really the one do. I like. Yeah. So something about this is some of the initial work of yours that pulled me in because I have a complex, like many women, like many beings of all genders, have a complex relationship with the masculine and yeah. have gone through a for my own healing and self-preservation and 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 for the the support of other women have kind of created through moon body a space that is entirely devoid of the masculine <laughs> and it's it's kind of shocking in a way how 
the men and the masculine do not exist in this in this world that I do my work in. And it's perfect because some of us really need that. And it's a beautiful yeah. little nest for women to come to and, and do our do our healing work. But in my own personal life, I have an aversion to the masculine that, you know, I love men. I adore men. I adore the masculine. I also have this deep aversion to men and the masculine in other ways so when i found this work i uh, your work i on this i really it 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 inspired me and it also showed where that aversion was still very very ripe so i would love to ask you what what are you trying to do with this i know you love to um to reroute myths to quote yourself to quote you, what what are you doing with with this work? Well, it's interesting that you bring up moon body and this and this idea of needing a place to be safe, a nest, a home, um, because that's actually the work I was doing before the pandemic. Is I or not the work? It was it was I can I had created these containers in the Hudson Valley where I live, where I would do storytelling gatherings for women and femme and trans and non-binary people, but no men. <laughs> right. And every month we'd gather and we would trade our stories about certain subject matters, you know, trauma, abortion, gynecological care, autoimmune illness, grief, you know, a lot of different things where it felt important for there not to be men to yeah. be able to settle into our nervous systems and really talk about these things. But what became clear to me about a week before <laughs> quarantine started was that in order to really shift our own lives and not always be nostalgizing and, and reworking older stories, we had to include men. Because mm. they were often the, the, the main characters of these stories. Right. And they were the ones who were doing harm. So to continually not invite them in was to not invite them to change. Mm. And there had been a big discussion among the rotating group of probably 300 women who came in and out of these gatherings that we needed to start figuring out a way to include men. Um, but then of course quarantine happened and, and it didn't happen. And I had a lot, you know, my partner left me right after a miscarriage <laughs> and broke our engagement and left in a pretty intensely horrific way right before quarantine. Wow. And I, it felt like it validated a lot of my feelings about men and their shitty behavior. <laughs> mm. And it was hard because some of my best friends are men. Some of my favorite family members are men. Some of my, the people I've loved most are men. And I could tell that I was very angry in a way that was not going to be helpful to anyone. But I didn't know what to do with that anger. <laughs> mm. And I think that my working with these myths was a way of trying to heal myself that I could see that patriarchy had been conflated with masculinity in a way that wasn't helpful to anyone involved. Mm -hmm. And that there had to be healthier ways to be masculine mm -hmm. than what we were being offered. Beautiful. Is there, for those listening, and there will be a lot of women listening, my audience is usually 90% yeah. women, is there a particular myth that you could offer to us that gives us a, a little taste of the healthy, sacred masculine? Well, here's one of my favorites, and I think this is one of the ways that 
this is a myth that I found really helpful in my own life, which is that, so Ariadne is the princess of Crete. And we can actually, if we look historically, see that she is the older goddess figure, that she's referenced in the earliest form of Greek as being the lady of the labyrinth. Um, but as the Romans and the Greek, the Greeks move in, and then as Roman myths reinterpret Greek myths, she gets demoted from the goddess to the kind of secondary human princess. And in the myth that comes down to us, she betrays her family to the patriarchal hero Theseus who comes in and tells Theseus how to kill the minotaur, this bull, at the center of the labyrinth and take over Crete, pretty much. And Crete, as we know, is the center, the last Bronze Age holdout of healthy partnership, egalitarian society. Um, so as we see Theseus come in, we can see him as kind of a symbol, a container for the patriarchal sky gods coming in and taking over <laughs> these partnership societies. And so Theseus absconds with Ariadne and who he is, he is tricked into betraying her brother, who's actually the Minotaur, and her culture. And he rapes her and he leaves her on the island of Naxos. He abandons her. And what we can actually see if we look underneath the bad paint job of, of patriarchy's rearticulation of this myth is that Theseus comes in and steals the goddess. He betrays her, he kills her lunar king, the bull god, the minotaur, and he rapes her and he abandons her. And, but what happens at the end is something very powerful, which is that as she's crying on the beach in Naxos, a god comes down. He's heard her crying. And he says, why are you crying about a man when you could have a god? And it is the ancient god Dionysus. And he marries Ariadne, and he gives her back her crown, and he makes her a goddess, and he gives her a constellation. He gives her the constellation in the sky, Corona, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm. um, speaking of Corona. And gives her back her throne. Um, so you can see that this vegetal god, this anarchic vegetal god that predates the Greek Olympic pantheon, comes in and reinstates the goddess mm. but it's also a really good message for men coming into relationship with women or men coming into relationship with non-men um which is that one in three women has been sexually assaulted mm. many people have experienced some degree of trauma or violence what does it mean to come into relationship with somebody who's experienced that mm. what does it mean to make them feel safe what does it mean to give them back their throne Beautiful. Yeah, so Dionysus, I think, is really a helpful way of saying, what does it mean to be a god that isn't a god of rape and pillaging and stealing, but a god of healing and creating safety and, um, yeah, make, bringing the goddess back into her, her rightful realm. Mm. And for anyone who has a man in their life who's not treating them well, a beautiful reminder that there's gods out there. <laughs> yeah, it really, that's like, that. I think that's in 
Ovid, who, who wrote this? Someone writes the story and really the, the words that come out of Dionysus' mouth are, why are you crying about a man when you could have a god? That sounds like something that should be on The Bachelor. I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Oh, beautiful. So, love, we mentioned briefly um, your work with the Magdalene, and I'd love to speak a little bit about that. Perhaps I've asked you if you wouldn't mind reading um, a poem, it's one of your favorite, one of my favorite poems of yours. So maybe you could read that now before we start to speak about her as a way to kind of bring her into the space. Sure. Okay. This poem is called Miriam Remembers the Kingdom. Good Friday. Here is a green hill where no one bleeds a mustard seed to suck on, to keep as a secret below your tongue. Here is dove song, pure and blue as a cooled stone at the river's edge, a sycamore fig with the imprint of a large hand and the dust at the foot of its trunk. For his hands were large and hairy. He laughed so loudly it scared the swallows from the branch above his head and wine. When there was wine, he drank it, undressed, ran like a leopard through the moonlight-striped Galilean hillside. Did you know there was a small white scar at the corner of his mouth? Yellow speckles like flower petals spreading from the center of his black-brown eyes. Do you celebrate his death? I would rather him alive. Do you tell his teachings? I would prefer his body, not bread and wine, not blood, but the man himself, twigs in his curly hair, nose crooked from the time his brother Jacob slugged him, arms strong from carrying heavy cedar beans across town. My love, my love, let me return to the moment before the sun rises on that last day. Let me pretend for one more hour that the kingdom of your body is whole and unharmed, belongs only to me. Thank you. Mm, thank you, love. I mean, I already read it a couple of times today and cried both times. I <laughs> definitely have tears coming in my eyes because, and this is something that happens with your work. It really transports me and I taste it. I'm glad. I mean, I, I always think about how taste and smell are in the brain. They're most directly correlated to memory. Mm. And when I try and create, stories or, or images or poems, I think that you have to create a sensory scaffolding. You have to create a sensual body. Yes. I remember, I can't, I'm going to misquote you here, but I remember you, some of your work is like asking questions. Does your, do your gods have roots? You know, yeah. does your prayer have a smell? Like, I can't remember exactly, but it's so evocative it's i and i think for me there's such a, a delivery of truth in in that grounding things within in the simple sensual reality of taste and smell and memory yeah um i mean it's our most direct relationship with where we are and who we're with 
it's how animals communicate with each other. It's so, and we are animals. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've gotten, we've gotten so stuck in our heads that we've been abstracted from our superpowers, mm. from our ways of actually communicating with the more than human world. So it seems important to me to try and recenter these sensory um, portals, especially there's so much, um, focus on psychedelics right now and I really appreciate the ways in which they can be deeply therapeutic but I also think that our own bodies are pretty psychedelic um, and that you can open up your sensory gating and learn how to have an experience with your own senses that lets your everyday experience be more psychedelic oh yes and my life is a testament to that <laughs> <laughs> I can tell yeah <laughs> absolutely love I would love to ask you who is Mary Magdalene or Miriam the Magdala or the Magdalene or does she have other names? I'm sure she does. But who is this? Who is this being, this woman to you? Hmm. Well, I, the name that she is most often called in all of the earliest texts, be they apocryphal, Gnostic, or canonical, is Miriam the in Migdal, Migdal mm. in, which means the tower. Mm. Um, and there has been a lot of really bad, sloppy scholarship that there was a place called Magdala and she was from it, but it has nothing to do with the history or the maps or the many tracks that we have access to. It would have been like calling a town, town or building. <laughs> Um, and in fact, there's no place called Magdala until at least 250 years after she would have lived. Mm. Um, instead, what we know is that Jesus gave a lot of nicknames. That even Peter is Petros for stone, and that that disciple's name was actually Shimon, Simon. Mm. And he called um, Andreas and his uh, Johann the Zebedee brothers, he called the Brothers of Thunder. He gave a lot of nicknames. So we know that Miriam was close enough to him that she deserved a nickname. She deserved a nickname that seems rather powerful, calls to mind quite a lot of scripture about um, the daughters of Jerusalem and the Tower of the Flock. Mm -hmm. um, so we can see that there, there's something significant about her, her epithet that she's been gifted with, Migdal. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the Magdalene shows me, I, I feel as if she has been a, a secret casket where the real Jesus has been stowed. Mm. I, I think that she represents the, the parts of Jesus that get obscured by empire and de being deracinated from his ecology and being murdered by by the empire and then and then co-opted by them that mm. she in a, a certain way because she stands outside the dominant paradigms and because she wasn't a man um she still holds on to the secret wisdom and so she prov she provides a side door back into the story of jesus in a way that could offer us a better defamiliarized um view of him mm, beautiful there are there's this huge resurgence of interest in her. Yeah. And that, I mean, there has been for many years, but I feel like it's really reaching kind of peak right now. And, you know, we know what happens when that happens. Yeah. Things get 
messy and things get confused and there is kind of this new Mary Magdalene that I don't recognize. Yeah, me too. And this is kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a little bit unsettling, isn't it? Because I I see the innocence in that. I see the desire to have a tangible figure that you can, that is such a positive force for women and you know for feminine spirituality. But we are really taking off her grit and her her feral qualities, and I and I, we're going to lose a lot there. So I wanted to ask you, what do you you know, if you can, if you are also conjuring this image I'm speaking of as as this, of this kind of neutered Mary Magdalene, what would you like to give back to her? I want to give back her nuance, her complexity, her Jewishness, <laughs> um, her humanness. Um, she was, a, you know, we actually, in Luke, one of the most stable pieces of information we have about her is that she was wealthy enough that she could support his ministry. Mm, yeah. <laughs> in Luke, we hear that she's one of the women who financially supports. So she's, she's a financially independent Jewish woman. Yeah. <laughs> Something we lose when she becomes white and red-haired and a Celtic sex priestess. Side note, <laughs> the whole historical argument for holy priestesses is defunct and falling apart. <laughs> mm. um, and it is, Which is really interesting to watch happen. It turns out there's almost no factual basis for it um and so I, i'm very oftentimes a little worried by how she gets turned into a holy sex priestess instead of being a complex jewish woman mm. who would have been growing up in a time period where there's imperial rule there's massacres there's genocide her own culture is very complex um and she obviously wants to reform judaism because she's following a man who's attempting to do it there's so many interesting things about her that we lose when we turn her into a kind of uh, either like a sacred vessel of the holy blood of Jesus who carries his seed and his line to France. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels like a way of making her into an object. Mm-hmm. Um, she just becomes a reproductive vessel. Um, so I have a problem with that too, even though I think that folklore is probably indicative of something very true <laughs> um, because there's so much of it. Um, and I don't like that when she's turned into a white woman. Yes. Um, I, I think that we have, one of the only things that seems very stable about her is that she had a Jewish name and she was Jewish. Mm. <laughs> so that seemed, I wanted to, to give back a complex figure. What, what kind of a person would have been in relationship with Jesus in that time period and would have had the spunk and the bravery to do it in the face of, a lot of um, opposition, probably. Mm. And is this the the Mary Magdalene that we're gonna read about in the Madonna Secret? Yeah, oh. um, I would say she's very she's very salty. She's she's a, she's a um, she's a spark plug. Mm. Um, but I also I didn't want to make a saint. No, I wanted to make someone who makes very bad mistakes. And I, and I do, and I think, that's, I think that's how I read, that's why I wanted to rehabilitate this story, is the crucifixion's always felt like a tragedy to me that's been fetishized and made into a miracle, and it doesn't seem like it's worked very well for anybody. And what would it mean to look at this story as a, as a Shakespearean tragedy, mm. as a love story that breaks down? Mm. 
I love that. I think we're going to have to wait till next year to read this, though, aren't we? Yeah, we <laughs> next oh. spring. Yeah, so a next year from now. So the Madonna Secret is coming out next spring. This is going to be your. Is this your second book? It will be my second book, but my first published work of fiction. Yeah. Oh, amazing. I really can't wait to read that because I'm so hungry to. Yeah. Well, how do you think? How does she? What does she smell of? Oh, that, I mean, the smell is the most dominant theme in the book. Oh. Well, this, it's interesting. She's associated with smell in the scriptures and in the Gnostic text. She anoints Jesus with sacred spikenard, yeah. which is a very intense scent. It's almost bodily. Um, some people find it a little overwhelming. They don't like mm -hmm. it. Um, but for me, I associate her with the smell of cooking spices and spices that would have been used in midwifery. So uh, rosemary, um, galbamum, uh, pine, cedar, um, mm -hmm. lily oil, probably. Yeah. Beautiful. And you made a little aside there about the, the, the argument for temple priestesses being kind of disproven. Do you feel to speak on that at all? Well, um, I don't have my, the book that I was reading, but this has been talked about quite a lot recently is a lot of the basis for temple prostitution that was reported in Babylonia and Sumer and, and um, Judea comes to us many years after it would have, was supposed to have happened via Herodotus, who um, is very racist <laughs> against those people. So our only factual basis for a lot of these actual practices comes from a detractor who's removed by many hundreds of years from the actual practices. Mm -hmm. And, we, it, you know, in terms of scholarly arguments, there's, not, there's no proof. Um, and I think I actually heard someone, who was it, who said something. I was reading a very beautiful book about Aphrodite by a scholar of Aphrodite who said it's not that sacred prostitution doesn't happen because in a world where everything is sacred, everything is dedicated to the goddess. <laughs> Mm. So yes, it happens. But this idea, this fetishized idea that's been really, really amped up by male historians and scholars doesn't have much basis. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a way of actually undermining a much more complex priestess role. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, love. Anything that is... Um, fetishizing the, the kind of mundane, earthy sexual rights that we know have, have gone on for hundreds, yeah. hundreds and thousands of years is, um, yeah, we don't need that, do we? We have enough of this fetishization of women's sexual power and women's roles and, yeah, it's not needed. That being said, there's a lot of sex in my book. Good. We love sex. Uh, yeah, I did. When I was writing it and I was being very covert about sharing what I was doing with people, I did joke and say it was my sexy Jesus book. <laughs> sexy yeah. Jesus. I mean, sexy tantric Jesus is also having a moment. So yeah, <laughs> yes. I'm sure people were like, oh, I can't wait to read that. Oh, yeah. Well, he's not he's not sexy tantric Jesus. He's more like sexy, crazy, mischievous <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Not sure who I'd compare him to in real and popular culture. Who would play him in the movie? Mm. Well, I did cast him when I was writing because I do think it's important when you're writing to have visual cues so that you can describe people who seem real. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you don't want to have... I, one of my critiques when I read a lot of people is like, I can't see who you're talking about. 
there's mm-hmm. no description. I can't like, what's their nose like? What do they smell like? You know, mm-hmm. how do they move? Um, and there was one actor that I was working with. He, his name is Louis Garel. Okay. Well, yeah, you can I, look him up. He was the person I was, I was writing as Jesus when I was writing it. He wasn't in, is he French? He is French. Is he in Emily in Paris? No. Okay. Cause he's um, quite a sexy man. <laughs> no. And I think he's called Louis. Yeah. Although I would say I would also, I, I vacillated between him and Dev Patel. So I think ah. either could do the role. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have a little look at him because I want to have a face for my Jesus. Mm-hmm. I always hesitate to tell people who you had in mind because I don't want to obscure their image. But yeah, I did think it was important to write from some kind of actual visual cue so that it would seem like a real person. Mm, yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And I feel I feel that in your work. You know, I, You get such a beautiful sense of where and who and a feeling and i think that's yeah we're all these sensual beings hungry to have more of the sensuality in our lives yeah and not the fetishized um white light version of it that i think has kind of been attached to the popular mary magdalene worship but the gritty dark feminine mm, complicated in the mud hieroscamos kind of <laughs> rutting <laughs> yes please. That word. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah yeah absolutely i mean this is i i've never smelt spikenard myself but i have this very clear uh, feeling of how it smells and this yeah, this bodily odor, this kind of sharp but sweet. And I, whenever I think of her, she appears in a cloud of this of this scent. Yeah. And it's very rooted and very earthy. And yes, I, I feel like what you've shared with us here can be really useful for some of the women listening who have this deep calling towards her and are maybe not finding the real grit of her that they're actually hungering for yeah it's hard i mean we just we want her but she's very slippery yes Um, but i also think that that gives us the opportunity of realizing that it's not about holding on (laughs) it's about opening up wider Um, yes and this You know, something that you were a guest teacher on um, Dark Feminine Medicine and you shared with us this beautiful talk on the more than human dark feminine. And I think when we are working with these myths and these goddesses and these figures that occupy so much um, intensity in the collective, it, it really behooves us to be able to imagine them beyond the form of woman and, and allow the kind of the liminal qualities of the the human and the more than human to merge. Yeah. And I do think that's one of the central tensions I worked with in the book is that Jesus very much sees himself as a servant of the people and Miriam very much sees herself as a servant of the land. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, And that, that creates certain kinds of misunderstandings. Mm. I love that. So, love, we need to nearly finish, but there's one question that I just have to ask you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
And this is, you speak so much or you're asked so much or you're inspired so much by fungi, mushroom, mycelium. <laughs> what is it like to trip with you? Ah, um, well, to be honest, I haven't done a heroic dose in about two years. Okay. And I don't do them very often. And I actually don't, I think that there's a, a kind of an idea that they do a lot, but I actually think that there's so many people I know who've taken heroic doses where it doesn't seem to have recalibrated their behavior. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and that there's a lot of hype about that. I'm, I think that when you get, become in relationship with the fungi and when you're taking them, as, you know, they're, millions of fungi species so the psilocybin story is just one mm -hmm. um and that story does seem to be wanting us to do something it seems mm -hmm. to be some asking for us to provide a mouth so i think for me when i do a heroic dose and i have a real psilocybin experience i'm asking to be given information about how best to act mm -hmm. in my ecosystem mm. not about how I can feel better or be better, but, but what I am supposed to do. Mm. Um, so yeah, and it has to be outside and it has to be summertime. <laughs> oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you then, but I was no. just thinking, so the mycelium is teaching you how to be more mycelial. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Good. I'm sorry. Please continue. You said outside. Oh no, yes, I just I just said that it's such a, it's such a sensual experience. It's like, you know, it, if you know about, how fungi actually like what their experience might be like they their sense organ covers their whole body you know they eat food by putting themselves inside of it mm. and digesting it like through their skin like mm. there's these incredibly tactile sensual beings and i think that you can kind of imitate that when you're having a trip like i love to go swimming mm. yeah and put myself in the land yeah mm, me too I love to lie down in the grass and smell the flowers and talk to the trees and the wind. And it's like replanting yourself. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm a big fan of, of taking heroic doses and perhaps I'll get to take one with you one day. That would be- I would love fun. that. And let's do it. Let's do it. Not in America. <laughs> uh, Maybe when you're in England, we yes, can do it somewhere here in the West Country and maybe we can pick the mushrooms from the ground and then eat them. That would be incredible. And I think that's the best way to do it, um, to eat the mushrooms that grew where you are because they probably have the precise information you're looking for. Absolutely. Where I'm from in the West Country, we have a lot of this tiny little mushroom called a Liberty Cap. That's, yeah, the Liberty Caps, yeah. Yeah, they grow everywhere, especially near cow poo. And so when it comes to the october late October time, we go picking and, and eating. And it's something I've been doing since I was a very young teenager. It's, very, um, it's a tradition kind of that's really rooted in the place that I'm from. So it's really fun to, to revisit that. Well, I would love to be able to, to jump on that. That sounds amazing. That's your official invitation okay wonderful <laughs> so love i want to close by asking you some silly questions okay what's your favorite place you've ever been to if you had to say one 
Oh, that's very hard. Although I will say that there is a place I went to that feels like it exists outside of time, which is it was a river island in the Badenkill River, somewhere between Vermont and, and New York State. Mm. Um, and it's also a place that's temporally located. It's both outside of time and also stitched into a specific time, which is late summer. Um, yeah, I think it's my favorite place I have ever been. And I did, I did do mushrooms there. So perhaps that is why. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Magical. I'm going to have to look that place up. I have no idea where. No, it, it, you won't be able to find it. It's oh, not good. on any map. It's just, it's just a small river island where me and my friends banked our canoes and camped for the night. Oh, it sounds magical. Yeah. I think I know the answer to this, but what's your favorite flower? Peony. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes, my favorite flower. What's your favorite color? Oh, it changes every day, but probably blue. Today it's blue. What kind of blue? Um, a deep indigo blue. Mm, yeah. Love that. What's your favorite thing about having sex with somebody else? <laughs> the whole thing. Um probably the emotional connection i just i don't think i think my heart and my and my sex organs are deeply connected so um i think my favorite part is the the kind of symbiotic fusion the feeling of becoming another person perhaps mm. a true mm. lover's response yeah who's your favorite goddess or mythological feminine archetype Oh, there's so many. Um, I'm very attracted to Aphrodite right now. Mm. Um, as an earlier version of Venus and a later version of Astarte and Anna. So on a rise with those, those warrior love goddesses. But Aphrodite has been feeling really compelling to me in that she definitely is complicated. She's not morally simplistic. She does bad things and good things. She even flickers between genders. I, I'm very... I feel like Aphrodite has a lot to offer women. Um, mm. She's complex enough to hold it all. I've been really enjoying your recent writing on her and reframing her as this um, lunar, a lunar goddess. Yeah. Really enjoyed that. And okay, if you could have anything to eat right now, I know food is a little bit difficult, but in a fantasy environment, and you could click your fingers and have any food right now, what would it be? I haven't eaten this food in 12 years, and I probably will never be able to eat it again, but it would be an almond croissant. Oh, yeah. Uh, hands down. Easy answer. One of the best things ever. Oh, I love it. Well, I would love to bring you some almond croissants and peonies <laughs> for a little place near Vermont um, dressed as Aphrodite. That sounds beautiful. I will <laughs> keep that in my in mind's so eye. There's so many other things I wanted to speak about, but it's, you know, we need to say goodbye. We'll have to speak again in we not will. long. And I would love to send you my book before it comes out and have you be one of the pre-readers. So that would be really, maybe we can talk after that. I would be honored, honored, honored. And I'd love to talk to you after that. I will devour this book. Um, <laughs> you might hate it. And I would definitely love to hear your actual response. I will give you my actual response. Good. A hundred percent, honestly, but I think it's quite unlikely that I will anything other than really enjoy it. <laughs> thank Love, thank you so much, Sophie Strand. Thank you for speaking with us today, and yeah, your time, your work. Thank you for 
your gifts that I really feel are, yes, they are fulfilling um, your desires as a writer, but they're also pollinating so many much needed, um, beautiful, balmy ideas out into a, a burning world. So thank you for that, love. Well, thank you so much, Miriam. And thank you for the cross-pollination that happens between me and your work too. Thank you, darling. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks. So if you didn't just fall in love with Sophie Strand, I don't know what's wrong with you. (laughs) If you want to go and read some of Sophie's work, I highly recommend following her on Instagram. Her handle is at Cosmogeny, which will also be in the show notes. Her website is sophiestrand.com. You can also follow her on Facebook at Sophie Strand. You can also be a a member of her Substack. So you can subscribe and you'll get subscriber-only content sent to your inbox every month. You can access all the links to that via her Instagram and website. And you can also pre-order her first book which is coming out in November will be available from November if you pre-order now and that is The Flowering Wand Rewilding the Sacred Masculine which Sophie spoke a little bit about with us today. Her second book The Madonna Secret which is an eco-feminist historical fiction reimagining of the gospel is coming out next year and both of these books are going to be published by Inner Traditions. I really hope you enjoyed chatting with Sophie and I as much as we did and I want to take this moment just to wish you well, to wish Sophie well, to send her all our blessings and all our love and gratitude for being the magical fungal fairy that she is. We love you. (laughs) 